get back to the Ephesians journey that we started. And we talked about on Sunday morning, if you'll remember, we talked about walking in the vanity of your mind. We gave several diagnostic questions and diagnostics of people who have allowed themselves to live separated, alienated from the life of God, maybe saved, but not living in, in that union, uh, that uh, fellowship with God. As a result of that, we pointed out different things. And then, of course, your, your thinking through process, your ability to reason becomes darkened. And the more you go away from light, the darker it gets. And then, of course, we talked about profligate living. And pretty soon, if you're not careful, you'll live in total selfishness. And uh, uh, really, uh, that's where the world is today. And uh, so manifests itself in just unbridled license. No boundaries, doing what you want to do, and certainly describes it, but Christians can fall into that too. That's why God in this passage said, now listen, folks, you're saved, but don't walk like unsaved people, and he lays that out for us. If you are here on Sunday and you say, you know, I identified with some of those diagnostics, well, the very first thing, of course, is to stop being alienated to the life and have a relationship with God. That's why we dealt with that Sunday night, but you know, there's a second part to it. That's what I want to deal with here tonight and uh, the rest of chapter 4. So let's go, if you would please, uh, to verse number 20, and uh, you'll see right there. Right after he uh, describes everything we just talked about, he says, But ye have not so learned Christ. We pointed out that that verse of Scripture, that word learn, is learned by experience. Now you can learn something academically, but you can learn something, you really don't know it till you do it by experience. Some of you have been in the shop, you know what I'm talking about, and your, your teacher can lecture you about how to do a piece of wood or how to fix a motor or whatever, but it's no substitute for actually doing it, right? Once you do it, you really begin to learn it. You're learning it by experience. Now, I'm a, uh, 35 years of RV'd uh, because that's just the way uh, we've had to do it with the family on the road, and there's a lot of things you learn by experience. You know what I'm talking about with an RV? Uh, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. In my early years of RVing, I made some mistakes. And more than once, I was cleaning up sewage. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. I was cleaning it up in places out that I don't want to ever do that again. And you kind of learn as you go. You learn. Now, things still happen. In fact, just over here at Love's. Had a very interesting thing happen at Love's. And uh, all I can say is, I bought, paid the 10 bucks. I was going to dump, you know, my you-know-what. And I had it all ready to go and hit the thing, and I didn't realize it because all the rain, their, their tank was full. I mean, it was full, which means it had nowhere to go. Okay, but anyway, so we left it with a little swimming pool there, and I went in and said, hey, your thing's not working. I'm sorry, but uh, you got a problem. Okay, but anyway, I, uh, they gave me my 10 bucks left, and left, and I left. Okay, but, but here's my point is, as you go on in life, you learn by experience. You ever learn by experience? We all have. There's certain things, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> that was a mistake. Okay, we've all done that. There's no substitute for learning by experience. That's the word, learn, there. But you have not so learned Christ. In other words, if you've walked with Jesus and you've learned anything about having a relationship with Jesus, that's not the way you live, verses 17 through 19. <laughs> you don't live that way. Okay, so the very first, obviously, remedy to overcoming an, uh, a wrong thinking process is to have a relationship with Jesus, to stop being alienated from the life and uh, have a relationship with the life. That's what revival really is. But notice it continues on in verse 21. If so you be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, when you have a relationship with Jesus, you know what he does? He teaches you. You know, you know, part of your time with God and your hour with God, if you do an hour or whatever time you do with God, is reading the Word of God. Why? 
because that's what he uses to speak to our hearts. You ever been had a real need or a real burden on your heart and you're just having your devotions and have your Bible open and I mean, I'm telling you there's a verse that just comes alive like a lightning bolt. That's Jesus teaching you. Anybody in this room who's been saved any length of time knows there's times that God spoke to your heart through His Word, whether it was preaching or your own personal time. And uh, so this passage of Scripture, he's telling the Ephesian believers who lived in a very wicked culture, as we talked about Sunday morning, he says, you know the Lord's taught you. You've been there. You were in the services when God showed up. You've had time with God. Now notice what he says Jesus taught them. It starts in verse 22. Now verses 22, 23, and 24, I hate to do this to you, but um, I, I'm going to give you some grammar. Okay, can I give you grammar? Did I ever tell you that English was important? Did I tell you young people that? I'm just teasing with you. Okay. But there's, uh, right after this uh, phrase, there are three infinitives. So here's what Jesus says. Here's what, I, here's what, uh, here's what you guys uh, were taught. Here's what God taught you. He taught you three things. Let's read them, if you would, please, starting in verse 22. That she put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, Number two, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Number three, and that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Okay, so here's what he's saying. Here's what I taught you. I taught you to, to get rid of the old man. And by the way, when the Bible's talking about the old man, he's not talking about your dad, okay? Now, hopefully you didn't call him that because I think that's disrespectful, okay? But that is not what he's talking about there. What he's talking about, the old man, he's talking about that unregenerate, who you were before you got saved. Said, so that's been put away. And then he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Then he says, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, I believe true holiness and deceitful lusts are, are two different, they're contrasted one another. If you really, they're a prepositional phrase. It's the lusts of defeat and the holiness of truth. So it's lusts, desires that are absolutely a lie, they're deceptive, and there's holiness which is born out of truth. Okay, but anyway, so those are the two contrasted ways. So you say, what's this saying? Well, there's two schools of thought on this. One school of thought would be this is practical. So what God is saying is you need to stop, you know, put off the old man and you need to put on the new. And that's a decision you need to make and you need to do it. Okay, so that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is it's positional truth. Now, positional truth would mean that the moment you got saved, you put off the old man and you put on the new. Now, here's my point. It really doesn't matter which position you take because the practical application is the same. Now, let me teach you something. Positional truth always mandates practical application. In other words, when you learn who you are in Christ, that's not just a nice intellectual thought. God says, this is who you are. Live like it. Okay, because that's who you are. Now, we're going to see, if you want to go a few verses down to Ephesians 5, verse number 8, you will see this, this hermeneutic or this uh, dynamic in play. I want you to see it in verse number 8. It says, For you were sometimes darkness, that is the idea of you used to be, you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. So here's what he's saying. Before you got saved, you were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in light. Okay, you moved into the kingdom of light. Now, what does he say after that? You're sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord? What does he say next? Walk as children of light. In other words, here's what he's saying. You used to be darkness. Now you're light. Live like it. So, the point is, here's what God is basically saying. Okay, don't you know this? 
When you got saved, the old man died. He was crucified, Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. You put on the new man, live like it. Now, you say, well, preacher, how do you do that? How do you live like it? I want to live like it. But I find myself a lot of times being deceived by my own desires. Anybody out, anybody out here today do something later on you think, I shouldn't have done that? Anybody last week did something you think, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have gone there? We all have. Why do we still get deceived? Okay, what's the problem here? If God's saying, listen, here's the way you used to be, here's the way you are now, live like it, why do we struggle living like it? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? Well, let me help you with another grammatical point. I just love the Bible because it's, there's truth there, Okay. Now, the first and the third infinitive is what they call the aorist tense. Now, the aorist tense is, is kind of the main tense in the Greek, and it's looking at the action kind of as a whole, and many times it has the idea of being an event, a crisis, a point in time. Like when you got saved, it was an event. It wasn't a process. Conviction might have been, but when you got saved, it was, it was an event. Okay, so uh, that's the two tenses on the outside. Now, don't miss this. The one that says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, is in the present tense. Okay, here's, here's the whole point. I want you to get this. This is, to me, so exciting. Here's how you live the put-off, put-on life. And the answer is, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. As you and I begin to uh, see our mind renewed by the, uh, the in the spirit of, see, our, see ourselves renewed by the spirit of our mind. By the way, the word renewed, let me just say this, is the idea of, it's passive which means we don't renew our minds, spirit of our minds. Now, the word spirit of your minds indicates that what we're talking about is not just your brain. It's the spiritual dynamic of your thinking process. So there's a spiritual dynamic that is being addressed here. We're not talking about just putting in new furrows in our brain. We are talking about a spiritual transformation of our minds. Okay, now, in, and since it's passive, we're not doing the renewing. So what renews the spiritual dynamic of your mind? What does that? And the answer is the Word of God. Now, there's two dynamics in the Word of God that are important. Number one, the Holy Spirit. Here it is. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Many of us, every one of you in this room has, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. But I got a question. Does the Holy Spirit have His sword? Many Christians have a swordless spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot bring Scripture back to you that you don't know. Every verse of Scripture you memorize, every truth you become familiar with, everything from the Word of God that comes into your heart, the Spirit of God can use it. But if it's not there, He can't use it. So many Christians have what I would call a swordless spirit. They got a swordless spirit. Now, if you're lost and you know the Bible, you got a, uh, how do I put this? You got a spiritless sword. <laughs> you're saved, but you don't have a Holy Spirit to wield. I mean, unsaved, but you don't have a Holy Spirit to wield it. Okay, but right now we're talking to believers, most, uh, if not all. So we're talking about somebody who has the spirit, but he may not have his sword. So the first way that, the, that we understand that God changes the dynamic, he renews the spiritual nature of our thinking process is by the Holy Spirit yielding his word. The second way is by us taking the Word of God and obeying it. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and then what does it say? And your thoughts will be established. 
See, if you're out here, teenager, you say, I don't understand that. Why do we have to do that? Okay, sure, the Bible tells us to do that. Why does, should we do what God tells us to do? I don't understand. Why, I don't get this. Why should we do it? Here, here's the key. If you'll do it, you'll understand. In other words, if you'll commit your works unto the Lord and say, okay, God tells me to do it, I'm going to do it. I may not know why. It doesn't make sense to me. But I'm going to do it. Your thoughts will be established. You'll figure it out. God will teach you. So here's how you renew your mind. You renew, you, you renew your mind, first of all, by putting the Word of God into our hearts. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that what? I'm going to sin against thee. I love Psalm 37. Uh, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now, if I told you there was something you could do that if you did it, when you fell, the Holy Spirit or God would catch you so that you wouldn't keep going. You'd fall, but instead of keeping sliding, you'd get back up. Would you be interested? Would you be interested if I told you there's something you could do if you fell, God would always catch you and you'd get back up instead of continuing to slide? We say, absolutely. Well, Psalm 37 tells us. Look at a few verses later. It gives us this key. key. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. See, when you and I put God's law in our hearts, guess what? We may fall. Every Christian falls, but not every Christian slides. There's two kinds of Christians in this room. Christians who fall and get back up, and Christians who fall and slide. And the difference always is this. Those that put God's law in their heart fall, but they get back up through the grace of God. Those that don't fall and keep going. Sometimes I'll ask a teenager who tells me, oh, I made that decision before, I didn't keep it. I'll ask him, okay, when you made that decision, did you begin to put God's law in your heart? Now you tell me, what's their answer? No, I didn't. As a result of not putting God's law in their heart, guess what? They fell and they kept going. So understand the power of the Word of God. Uh, first of all, we, we've got to put the law of God in our heart, our minds. But it's not just there to put it in our hearts and minds. We've got to obey it. And God says when you do that, the Spirit of God begins to renew your mind. He begins to renew your mind <laughs> with believing it. I mean, uh, memorizing it, meditating on it, becoming a part of you. It's like this. Uh, some uh, people know the Word of God, and they could uh, quote it to you, but it's not in their heart. No, the Bible did not say, thy word have I hid in my head. It said, thy word have I hid in my heart. How do I put this? When your Word of God is in your heart, it's second nature. I don't know about you, uh, I've known a few men uh, that were Navy SEALs, and basically a Navy SEAL will tell you, never tap me on the shoulder from behind. You know why? Because they will kill you before they realize they've killed you. It's absolute second nature. They were taught how to react in such a quick way to save their own lives. So the point I'm simply making, what happened there is, they put that training, it's in their heart. It's become second nature. You ever notice that a great basketball player, everything's second nature. When a play is called, he doesn't sit there and go, which play was that? It's second nature. He knows exactly what to do. It's like a football player, a quarterback, NFL quarterback, who's, who's you know, worth his salt, and he's calling the, he has to change the, um, change the call and the snap. You know how that goes. And, because he sees the defense and the play's not going to work. So he's changing the call and the snap. Now, you don't want a wide receiver. That, Which play was that? <laughs> you want it to be second nature. 
He just flips, okay, boom, and, and he's, he's on to do it. Just, he just automatically does it. See, that's putting God's Word in your heart. It's where it becomes second nature. It's the way you think. <laughs> so God's telling us, put your law in my heart, your steps won't slide. You may fall, but not, you're not going to keep going. You're going to get back up. And I will tell you, I believe that to be with all of my heart true. So you put God's word in your heart, and then you obey it, and you begin to see your mind renewed. Now, the thing you need to understand that is different about being renewed in the spirit of your mind is this. It's in the present tense. Now, first and third are in the eros tense. So this one's in the present tense, which means it's continual, it's durative. So from the moment you get saved to the moment you die, you and I should be in the constant process of allowing the Spirit of God to renew the spiritual nature of our mind. Are you tracking with me? That's why you don't stop going to church, because you learned it all. You know why? Because we'll never learn it all. I think it was Dr. Brokenshire, who was a teacher at Bob Jones University. They said he had photographic memory. One day he was in chapel, and he was reading a book, and Dr. Bob Sr. was preaching. And he stopped the message and said, Dr. Brokenshire, he said, I I'm, he just can't be reading a book. We don't let the students do that. I can't let you do that either. He said, Dr. Bob, I've heard every word you've spoken. He said, well, what did I say? And he quoted Dr. Bob's message from the beginning all the way to that point. So Dr. Bob looked and said, okay, nobody can read a book except for Dr. Brokenshire. He's the only one that can read a book in chapel. Now, I, that's unthinkable to me, isn't it, to you? Read a book and be able to process that, and then every word you're hearing, you're processing. That's called multitasking. Now, ladies can do that, but I can't. I mean, I, I'm a man. I got, it's like a little, uh, little thing I saw. Somebody texted me. I, I thought it was great. It had two pictures. One was a single railroad track going through the woods, and it said, man's brain. Then it had a railroad yard with tracks going every direction. They're all mangled up, and it said, female brain. <laughs> so I don't know about you. I pretty much can't multitask, so I, that makes no sense. But anyway, Dr. Brokenshire was brilliant. He knew multiple languages. He would never read a book twice because he knew his book. He could tell you, just pick that up, go to page 167, go to the third paragraph. I'm telling you the truth. The guy was brilliant beyond description. He knew his library, could tell you the page and the paragraph where a certain truth was found. And one day, I think it was a student talking to Dr. Brokenshire and said, Dr. Brokenshire, isn't it wonderful to know everything there is to know about the Bible? Dr. Brokenshire looked at him and said, son, I had not even begin to understand the depths of the Bible. Now, let me just simply say, if Dr. Brokenshire still needed to learn the Word of God and be renewed, I guess we do too. The truth is all of us, the entire life long, we're renewing. We're saying, God, I don't want them to think this way. I don't want to think like the world. I don't want the futility and the emptiness of a worldly thinking like we talked about Sunday morning. I want to see my brain start. I want to, I want to see the spiritual nature of my mind change. And anybody growing in the Lord, that's what's happening. Now, in regard to that, we're going to stop for a moment, and we're going to Go through the rest of the book, uh, the rest of the chapter of Ephesians 4, and he's going to tell us, give us some very important examples. If on Sunday you say, yeah, performance acceptance, yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with thinking I've got to do all this to be accepted of God. Or, yeah, I deal with worthlessness. Or, i got a lot of insecurities and self-doubt. And, yeah, I, I can see, I, I, I struggle with some of those things. Okay, now God's going to help us here. Because there's this process, he's going through the book here to help us. So uh, let's go to verse number, uh, I guess it's now verse number 25. So now we're into the practical application 
of getting our mind renewed so we can live the put-off, put-on life. The put-off, put-on life. So here's what he's saying. First of all, wherefore put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now I'm just going to simply say this, that one of the biggest things that Satan uses when it comes to entrapping people is dishonesty. One of the most powerful things that God's Word teaches us that dispels uh, sin, sinful addictions and sinful besetting sins in people's life is honesty. God gives grace, anybody know, to the humble. You know what humility is? Humility is honesty. That's what my dad told me. Humility is just honesty. And it's dependence. It's God, here I am, here's my problems, I need you. That's humility. So it's not, it's not hard. It's not, it's not looking at your shoes and feeling like you're worthless. No, that's not humility. Humility is, here's who I am, here's my issues, and I need God. That's what it is. Okay, so um, and it's, it's like this. If you study, and I've done some study on addictions, you will find that one thing you will always find about somebody who's addicted to anything is dishonesty. A young man in this room who's looking at pornography is dishonest. Because he doesn't go to his mother when he's done and say, Mom, you this is what I just did. Doesn't do that, does he? He acts like he's not doing it. You know what that's called? Lying. It's dishonesty. People involved with sinful activities that they're not getting right are not honest. They're not honest with the people that love them, the people that they should be honest with. If you're a child or you're young, young adult, it would be your parents, your pastor, people that have a right to know. Now, I'll be honest with you. Lying is a big deal. I don't care who you are in this room. I'm going to tell you right now, you've got a problem with honesty. You've got a problem with God. And that's one of the reasons you saw yourself Sunday morning. I'm just going to be honest with you. Honesty is, is, is always, dishonesty is always going to lead you to wrong thinking. And one of the best things you can do if you want to get your mind renewed is start being honest. Start telling the truth to the people who have a right to know. Confess your faults one to another, and ye shall be healed. In other words, since I'm talking about the appropriate people, the appropriate time. I get that. But I have seen people who are spun in some addictive sin they can't break out of, never break out of it until they get honest with the right people. And I'm telling you, if you know somebody who's not being honest, I can guarantee you there's something else going on. It's, it's one of those things, this whole passage is going to tell you these are core issues. It means there's a problem. So I'm going to tell you, young person, if you lie to your parents, I'm telling you right now, you've got a problem, and it's probably deeper than just lying. And I'm telling you, sir, if you lie to your wife, you've got a problem. If you lie to your husband, you've got a problem. If you lie to other church members, you've got a problem. You know, I never used to, I, I grew up in a home where, it was, I mean, lying, you'd have thought, you'd have thought, you'd have thought you had committed the unpardonable sin, almost, you know. I mean, I remember as a kid just being scared to death about lying. And I thank the Lord for my parents on that deal. But uh, we all understand that in our human nature, we all have a tendency to, uh, to sometimes not always want to, you know, say it like we ought to say it. Now, I'm talking about appropriate people. 
You know, there's a big debate. Well, what if the communists took over and they came to your house and said, do you have anybody living here? And of course, you had people hidden. What would you tell them? Well, that, here's my point. That's not where we're living right now. Okay, so let's just leave that ethical dilemma out of this equation. Because the truth is, for most of us, the real issue is just being honest with people around us. And here's what I find. God blesses a church when we pull the mask off and we are who we are. Can I say this? A church is not a museum. It's a hospital. And I don't know about you, when I come to church, sometimes I need help. One of the things I've loved about Sunday school, Falls Baptist Church, is uh, I, I, this happened several times. I've sat down at Sunday school. Of course, I'm not there all the time. And guy will come in and sit down and say, man, I had a rough week. Got angry at work. He said, I cussed everybody out. He said, and he starts crying. And he said, would you pray for me? Do you know what happens when that moment occurs at the table? Here's exactly what happens. I don't know how to explain this. It's like God steps out of the closet and just is in the center of the table. And you know what happens? The other guy's saying, well, you know what? I got some issues too. And I struggle here and I struggle here. And the honesty of the table, I'm not talking about something that's inappropriate. The honesty of the table and the love, it's almost immediately there's a love for one another. Because nobody's got the mask on. They pull the mask off and say, you know, I'm struggling too. My struggle may be different, but, and there begins to be a prayer one for another. I'm telling you, friends, I, I have found this. A lot of God's people are hemorrhaging. But you know what? They put a mask on and they ask like, act like they're in picture of spiritual health when they're not. You know what the best thing to do? Pull the mask off. The appropriate people say, I'm hemorrhaging. I need help. I'm telling you something, friends. God gives grace to the humble, and you'll find God's people will too. And if somebody gives you a hard time for being honest, they're not spiritual. And I'll tell you, God knows they're not spiritual. Because God knows that he blesses uh, honesty in the appropriate the appropriate way. We just get honest. I've seen this now in 35 years of working young people. I don't know how many times, I'm telling you, I don't know how many times, I've been at a campfire service where kids are giving testimony and all of a sudden God marches through the door and the presence of God is everywhere. You know what it always begins with? Brokenness. Tears. Honesty. I've been in more than one 45-minute prayer meetings. In fact, I've been probably in, oh, into the double digits of 45-minute prayer meetings where teenagers did the praying and you could hardly stop them because there was brokenness, there was honesty, there were tears. And I, will, I would call it revival. That's what I would call it. I believe it with all my heart. But it never comes while kids are trying to act like there's something not, they're not. It always comes when they pull the mask off and say, of course, they know each other and they know that each other has issues. They get broken. So um, this is God simply saying pretty much, I mean, get rid of dishonesty and replace it with honesty. That's all he's saying. Get rid of this. Replace. That's the renewing of your mind, okay? This is the old man. This is the new. Start living like God wants you to live. Get rid of the old, which is lying. Bring in the new, which is appropriate honesty. Everyone in this room, everyone, every one of you in this room, particularly you men, because I'm just going to be honest with you, we men are hard-hearted and we are pretty proud. I'm going to be honest with you. One of the biggest problems, I'm just going to be honest with you, if I could tonight, one of the biggest problems I deal with in 35 years of working with young people is bitterness. Kids are bitter. And the number one problem with bitter kids is angry fathers. Now, I'm just going to tell you about angry fathers because I've done it now for 35 years, and I'm just going to tell you right now, they are some of the most hard-hearted, proud people on planet Earth, and they are the last ones to admit they're the problem. 
They will sit in the pew and this preacher can preach and I can spit forth fire and they sit there and they'll blame their wife, they'll blame their kids and the last person they'll blame is themselves. And I will tell you, there will never be revival until angry fathers get broken before God and realize they got a problem. See? Now I'm not going to be... You know, I want you to understand, I realize many of them never resolve the issues with their own father who was angry. And they're just perpetuating uh, some anger from generation to generation. I get that. I understand that. I'm doing damage control all the time and saying, hey, teenager, just because your dad's angry and your grandfather's angry and your great-grandfather was angry doesn't mean you have to. There's something called grace, and you don't have to be what they were. You can break the chain. But you'll never break the chain until you get honest. See, it's got to get honest. So that's the very first thing God says. Okay, wherefore? He's saying right here. He's saying, listen, folks, this is it. The next thing he deals with is stunning as well. It's stunning. Look what he says next. Uh, verse number 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. This is stunning. Be angry is, I've looked at commentaries, and man, I'm telling you, everybody takes a different spin on the deal. Whenever a bunch of commentaries take different spins, you know it's a tough verse. But when I study the language, it's passive. So the idea is, is the idea that, how do I put this? There's something provoking you to anger. Let me ask you a question. Men, would you be honest, since we just talked about it? How many of you men would be honest that at least once in your life, I'm raising my hand, you banged your head on the cabinets? Raise your hand now. Let's just, everybody raise your hand. Raise your hand. How many would be honest that when you banged your head on the cabinets, the next thing you wanted to do, not that you did, but the next thing you wanted to do was rip the cabinets off the wall and destroy them? Yeah. Isn't that that crazy? See, it's like this, folks. Whenever... um, Whenever we're provoked to anger, okay, now I realize an inanimate object's a little bit different. Have you ever noticed when somebody hurts you, you want to hurt them back? Have you ever noticed that? You can see that in kindergarten, can't you? So here's what, here's what God is saying. Here's what I believe with all my heart God's saying. He says, when you are angered because somebody provokes you, don't sin. Don't do it. Don't sin. If your wife provokes you, how many of you men, your wife, no, I'm not, I'm just teasing, I, I was just teasing, I wanted you to get worried there, okay, I just wanted you to sweat it out a little bit there, okay, I'm not asking you women how many of you have been provoked to anger, because I know you have, because we, get, we, we, got, we got problems, we men have problems, I, I, you probably figured that out, okay, but anyway, here's the point. You get react to your spouse, I'm telling you right now, at that moment that you get anger in your heart toward your spouse, you're at a very, very precarious moment. God says, be angry and don't sin. And here's the key. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, friends, it's like this. You better take care of it as soon as you can. You better deal with it so you can walk away from that situation now, I'm going to just tell you, sometimes, well, preacher, I'm really not angry. Okay, I'm just going to give you a little synonyms because I just want us to get honest. Low-grade resentment. When a man has low-grade resentment toward his wife, I'm telling you right now, that man has given place to the devil. The word place is a very interesting word. It's the word tapos, T-O-P-O-S. We use it in English. Ever heard of it? Topography. In other words, God is saying don't give real estate to the devil. And commentators say that this is connected to letting the sun go down upon your wrath. 
So it's like this, friends. Any of us in this room, myself included, do not, when we're provoked to anger and we do not deal with it, you give real estate to the devil. And I will promise you this. When you give real estate to the devil, from that real estate, he will attack you. You know, this is why I'm going to say this. Many times, people who are liars, if you really ask them, they also are harboring resentment. Or blame. That's another one. Blame. It's not my fault. It's that woman. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Adam did that. Didn't get Adam off the hook, did he? He blamed his wife. God said, nope, not going to cut it, Adam. You're responsible. You know, who's blamed, honestly, when it comes down to it for plunging the human race into sin? Not Eve. Adam. Now, I want you to understand, friends, what God is simply saying, blame doesn't cut it, resentment, bitterness, anger, any of these things, even if they're low-grade, give place to the devil. What if I told you that in a rural section of Tennessee, that uh, the Soviet Union, or Russia, I guess we'd say now, had gotten a, a large tract of land, and under the ground they were building a military installation from which they planned to attack America. Would you be concerned? Yeah, you're thinking, wow. You know, as Americans, we all understand wars out there. None of us want a war here. In fact, there's a little side note. I was talking to somebody recently, and they said, did you know that in World War II, the Japanese wanted to invade the mainland of USA? But there was one thing that deterred them, and one thing only, that the citizenry was armed. And they knew that if they invaded, there'd be a gun barrel sticking out of every window, especially if they were in West Virginia. You know what I'm talking about? There'd be three or four gun barrels coming out the window, and it wouldn't have looked pretty. Probably Tennessee's not too far behind, okay. But um, you get the point. But uh, none of us want a, a foreign na nation attacking us from our own soil. That's why September 11th was so jarring. Because it came from sleeper cells right here. And that bothered us as Americans. Now here, as Christian friend, what if I told you Satan has real estate in your life and he's constantly defeating you from that real estate? Would you be concerned about that? I'm just going to tell you right now, God's not trying. He's just trying. If you are not being honest, Satan has real estate. If you have a low-grade resentment toward a husband or wife or bitterness or anger toward someone, You've given real estate to the devil. Can I say this? If you have unresolved issues with your father, you have, you have real estate to the devil. If you have unresolved issues towards your mother, I'm telling you, you've given real estate to the devil. I don't care who you are. Well, you say, preacher, it was her fault. It wasn't my fault. That very attitude, you have given real estate to the devil. And he's attacking you. Many men don't understand that a lot of the moral failure in their life comes from the fact that they have given Satan ground that he is attacking them from that ground. And he's coming after them hard. That's why they struggle with dishonesty. That's why they maybe struggle with looking at things they shouldn't. That's why, uh, because they have given ground to the devil. Well, let's continue on. There's more we could say here because there's a lot of, like I've said, I'm dealing with teenagers and dealing with a lot of bitterness and anger that comes because of unresolved issues to many times toward parents, but sometimes others. Look what it says here in verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to, to give to him that needeth. Okay, so here it is. Number three, okay, so we're going two things, uh, th several things here, the put off, uh, put on life. Okay, stop being a liar, start putting on truth. Okay, deal with us, uh, don't deal with anger. I mean, get a hold of grace, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And number three, don't be a taker, be a giver. 
Everybody in this room is either more of a taker or you're more of a giver. I guarantee you, you mark this word, mark my word. Every one of you teenagers in this room, if you are more of a taker than you are a giver, you're still immature. Because maturity is when you're more of a giver than you are a taker. It's all about giving. It's not about taking. In other words, it's not about me, it's about others. It's another indication that we're, we got a problem in our life. When we're, it's just like this. We all know that a marriage doesn't work if one or more of the partners is a taker. It'll never work. It only works when they both are givers. I tell the students at Baptist College of Ministry regularly, when you get married, which most of them are going to do, when you get married, you're going to have the biggest problem you've ever thought carried in that marriage. And I said, you know what your biggest problem is going to be? You. So God designed marriage to confront self. Did you know that? You ever notice when you get married that all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm more selfish than I thought I was. Well, then God has a sense of humor because then he gives you kids. Now, I got a theory. I can't prove it. But the more kids you have, the more self that God knew he needed to peel off. I, I only got three. Okay, I only got three. Okay, so uh, I'm just teasing with you. Don't take that too far, okay? That was a joke, okay? No theology there, none at all. Okay, so here it is. Oh, I thought Micaiah was going to comfort his parents. Okay, on that. Okay, I wasn't sure what was going on there. Okay, so, okay. But anyway, my point is simply this. You know, in marriage and family, your, self, your selfishness is constantly, self is constantly confronted. I'll tell every single guy and girl in this room, if you want to be selfish the rest of your life, please don't get married. Because you'll never have a good marriage until you come in to be a giver, not a taker. And all of us are growing on it. I'm not saying I've arrived, because deep down, every man, I don't know if you ladies figure this out, but men, we really struggle with selfishness. Have you ever noticed that, ladies? And nobody said amen. Wow, they're pretty mature ladies in this, in this room. But, um, but my point, friends, is uh, God's saying, hey, you've got to change this mentality out. You've got to get rid of that taker stuff, and you need to be a giver. Now that brings me to another one. These are all important. We're going somewhere. And look what it says next. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearer. Okay, I kind of put this, don't be a terror downer, be a builder upper. Don't be a terror downer, be a builder upper. In other words, edifying means you're building people up. You know, every day of our lives, we ought to build people up with our mouths, every day. I want to ask you, who did you encourage today? Who did you build up today? Who did you say that was a great job? Who did you encourage today? Uh, let me just give you something that might be a help. Uh, I really don't, uh, I don't know how to explain this. My father, I think, was a genius, an absolute Bible genius. I really do. I think he was, particularly when it came to family issues. Um, my dad got a hold of a truth, and I don't know if he'd articulate it this way, but as I've looked at it over uh, the years since my dad's been in heaven, I've come to articulate it biblically this way. I think one of the secrets of child rearing is found in Proverbs 3. It says, as a father correcteth his son, uh, the, uh, excuse me, I better get the exact wording here, probably better look it up just to make sure I get it right, Proverbs 3, and um, I just don't know why the wording escaped me here at the moment, but I want to get it because it's, um, it's a very helpful thought here. I'll get it here in a moment. My apologies. Um, well, the Lord loveth, let me see, I'm, I'm having a hard time uh, finding the verse. The Lord loveth 
Uh, let's see, the Lord, whom the Lord, whom the Lord loveth, he, there it is, correcteth. I got it now. Whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the Father, help me out now, the Son in whom he, I want to ask you a question, every parent in this room. When you discipline your kids, do your kids walk away believing that you delight in them? Because when God corrects us, he does it, don't miss this, because he delights in us. That was my dad's secret. He was constantly affirming and casting vision, in a certain sense, even with correction. In other words, it's like this. I don't know when or how, but somewhere along the line, my dad spent some time with God, and he got a sense of what he believed God had called me to do. He, he had a vision for my life before I did, and he constantly cast that for me. My dad was constantly saying, Jim, God's going to use you. God's hand is on your life. You're going to be used in a way that I was not used. I believe you're going to have a greater ministry than I had. And he was constantly casting vision. And you know what I found about young people? If you tell them something like that, they'll believe it. Now, please understand, my dad wasn't on the power of positive thinking. He had gotten alone with God, gotten God's vision for my life, and he began to cast it for me. I knew my dad delighted in me, even when he does it with me. I knew he did it because he delighted in me. Isn't that what God does? Now, what I'm trying to say is this, mom and dad. When you tell a kid you'll never do anything right, you know what? He might just live up to it. If you tell a kid God's hands in your life, God's going to use you, he might live up to that one too. There's power in our words. And all I'm simply saying is get along with God. Get an idea of a sense of vision for your kids and start casting vision for your kids about what you believe God has gifted them to do. See, each one of your kids has a natural skill set that they were born with. But there's something even greater than that, and that is a spiritual gift. I will be honest with you, my natural skill set has very little to do with my call to be an evangelist. Because when God gave, called me to be an evangelist, gave me the gift of the evangelist, it's supernatural. It's not my skill set. Now, God uses my skill set. But the gifting is spiritual. It's supernatural. And every young person in this room, God has uniquely gifted you to do something. And when you get a hold of what your gift is, it's explosive. It's powerful. Every adult in this room has a gift. In fact, everybody in this room ought to be involved in this local church. If we go back to Ephesians 4 a little bit further, you'd find this. Because God has a part. You're part of the body. And if you're not functioning, it's not working like it should be. Every one of you is gifted to do something in this church. And somebody's put this about a supernatural gift, and maybe this will help. And I know I've gone a little bit of a rabbit trail here. It's your supernatural gift, every gift of God, all the gifts in the Bible, if you... Um, are really commands. We're supposed to serve, we're supposed to be merciful, and all of them are commands. But it's this, whatever your spiritual gift is, that is what is supernaturally blessed when you do it. In a way your other things aren't. And it's just what it is. And if you'll start functioning there, my dad used to put it this way, whatever you are critical about this church about is your spiritual gift. So the fact you're critical means you're supposed to plug the hole. And if you don't plug the hole and stay critical, you hurt the body. So if you're saying, hey, nothing's organized around here, you know what God's saying to you? Help organize. Nobody serves around here. You know what God's saying to you? You better get serving. Nobody wins souls around here. Okay, God's saying get out there and do it. You tracking with me now, friends? 
See, but my point is that was a little sidetrack. Okay, that was free. Okay, I try to give you something free every night. Okay, back to it. Okay, tearer downer, a builder upper. There is, there's something power. Somebody has said nobody will do anything great for God unless somebody tells him he can do it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I kind of think it might be. Gypsy Smith was told as a little gypsy boy by D.L. Moody, you're going to do something great for God one day. And you know what? He did. Just think of it. One encounter with the preacher. I think every one of us ought to every day leave a trail of encouragement every day. Build up, don't tear down. And the greatest people you ought to build up is the people that are in the four walls of your house. I'm encouraging every father to get on your knees and say, God, give me a vision for my kids so I can start casting a vision. The Bible says they're like arrows. You know what arrows need to be? they got to be shot. Well, how are you going to shoot them if you don't know what direction to shoot them? Get alone with God. Start to get a sense of what they're gifted to do and shoot them in that direction because I'm telling you, it's powerful. It's absolutely powerful. So, um, so a terror downer or builder upper. Now, that brings us to the final point, because we've really dealt with some core issues. Lying, taking, being a taker, selfish, dealt with bitterness, anger, wrath, dealt with tearing people down instead of building people up. Now, the last few verses here in Ephesians 4, we're just going to deal with them quickly, although a whole message could be preached, and if the Lord so leads, we'll preach that message. But I'm coming back here to Ephesians as I got tied up there in in the Proverbs there for a moment. So let's read those last verses and we'll close it out. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now let me just stop for a moment and say this. Let all bitterness, that whole long list, be put away from you. That's passive. Here's what I want you to understand. You can't get rid of your own bitterness. The whole idea is let God get rid of your anger and your bitterness. Here's the thing you have to understand. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who pulls it out. He's the one that does the miracle. So you can't grieve the teacher. You can't grieve the doctor, so to speak. You can't grieve the healer. So let let it happen. You say, well, I preach your how. How? Okay, verse 31. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. Here it is. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. The whole key to getting real estate back from the devil is forgiveness. I'm telling you right now, friend, if you have resentment towards your spouse, you have a problem. And whatever you think she's done, you need to, or he's done, you need to forgive. And I'm not saying that uh, each issue, uh, there's obviously Bible steps there, but here's what I am saying. Bitterness, anger, wrath, resentment, blame are never the answer. They're never the answer. Now, let me just help you out. Forgiveness and reconciliation are different. Forgiveness takes you and God. Doesn't involve any human being. It's just you and God. Reconciliation involves another person. You can forgive somebody and not be reconciled. Does that make sense? You can't reconcile with someone who doesn't think they did wrong. But you can forgive them. Do you see the difference? Reconciliation takes two, and forgiveness takes one. I'm talking on the human side. It takes you and God. 
You remember what Jesus did on the cross? What did he say? Father, forgive them. Now here, please hear me. Is every one of those that he that put him on the cross forgiven? I think he was referring to us too. But the point is, were all those people that, okay, he was saying forgive them, what was he reconciled to them? And the answer is, not all of them. Some will go to hell because they never reconciled. In fact, God's given to every one of us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. We're going to people and say, hey, listen, don't you understand? You need to get reconciled to God. He died, shed his blood, rose again. And if you'll just trust him, he'll wash your sins away and keep you out of hell. You need to be reconciled to God. We don't put it in that terminology, but that's what we're telling them. It's a ministry of reconciliation. We call it soul winning. So when it comes to forgiveness, please understand, I'm not talking about reconciliation. I, when a kid comes to me and says, yeah, my father did this, this, and this, I said, well, you know, he may never ask you to forgive you, but that's okay. You need to forgive them and have it ready. Hopefully you'll get reconciled, but you may not. So forgiveness is very important, friends, and it's the key, I believe. It's the key that begins to get the real estate back. It's the key that helps you stop being a taker, start being a giver. It's the key that will help you stop being a tear-downer and start being a builder-upper. It's the key that will help you stop being a liar and start being a truther. See, so here's the key. You've got to get the ground back. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now, I don't have time to preach the whole message on forgiveness. But I will say, friends, that when it comes to forgiveness, what we're basically saying is this. God, they don't owe me anything. I'm letting it go. Many different aspects could say about it. But let me just simply say that God can give you the grace and the wisdom. If you say, preacher... I have struggled with this. I believe there will be freedom. I believe many marriages, there's a low-grade resentment. And that's why there's a limitation of what God's doing in that marriage and in that home. Just a low-grade resentment. Like that woman, why does she do that? Why does she say that? Let me just simply say, man, how do I say this? You've been married to her for a while. <laughs> Maybe you ought to take responsibility for it. The point I'm making, friends, is it's easy to point a finger. But forgiveness saying, okay, God, she's not perfect, I'm not perfect. God, he's not perfect, I'm not perfect. Okay, but the point is, God, I'm, I, I've got I've to let it go. You know what happens when you don't let it go? It kills you. Somebody said bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other guy falls over dead. I'm telling you, it'll never work. It just won't work. In fact, there was, um, several years ago, there was a basketball player by the name of Rudy Tomjanovich, and uh, he played for the Houston Rockets, back, big, tall, white guy, back in, uh, I think, the 80s. One day, they're playing the Los Angeles Lakers, and Kermit Washington of the Los Angeles Lakers got in a fight with one of the Houston Rockets. The Houston Rockets were on the top of the league. They were just playing great basketball, and Rudy uh, began to lumber over to the fight. Of course, he's white, which means he can't run. But anyway, and he uh, starts running over there, you know, big old clumsy, uh, you know, guy. And he's big guy, and he comes running over there. And Kermit Washington later said, out of the corner of his eye, all he saw was that red uniform. And he turned, and he hit uh, Rudy Tomjanovich in the jaw. They said he didn't break his jaw, he broke his face. He was tasting spinal cord fluid in his mouth as a result of how devastating the blow was. Literally almost died. It effectively ended his NBA career. Somebody said to him, 
at the time, Rudy, aren't you bitter at Kermit? He said, no way. And he's the one where I heard that from. <laughs> no, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other guy falls over dead. I'm not going to do that. He said, I feel sorry for Kermit. Well, I don't know if you know this, within the last couple of years, Kermit Washington went to jail. Now an older man. Somebody got a hold of Rudy Tom Janovich and said, hey, Kermit got a just desserts. He's in jail. I don't know what Kermit did. And that's when he said, no, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not glad about that. I feel sorry for Kermit. Now, I don't know if Rudy was saved or not. I have no idea. But I will tell you this. He was at least applying Bible truth. <laughs> Forgiveness saying, I'm letting it go. I'm not holding it. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm letting it go. I was um, just a couple of, um, just about a year ago at the Victory Conference up at Falls Baptist Church. I was preaching, uh, not out of this passage, out of 2 Corinthians. I was dealing with uh, forgiveness issues. Particularly, I was dealing with father uh, father wounds and some of those issues that go with that. And I remember when I finished the message, uh, a preacher came up to me, he's probably in his 30s, and he said, Brother Van Gilden, can I talk to you? I said, sure, we, we can talk. And I could tell he was troubled. He was upset, and I kind of gathered he was a little upset at me. So we sat down, and he said, Brother Van Gilden, I didn't come here to hear this. He said, all this father stuff, he said, it's bothering me. So I said, well, tell me about your dad. He said, when I was a little kid, my dad walked out of my life. He said, I haven't seen him for decades. He said, I had abusive stepfather. I found out later I think there were abusive stepfathers, but evidently one was kind of the, the one that was more abusive. And so I remember I, I didn't even know what to say. I, I'm not a good counselor, I'll be honest with you. I really don't feel like a good counselor at all. The very first thing that came to my mind, I said it. I said, well, do you pray for your father? I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me and said, Brother Van Gelderen, why would I pray for that man? He walked out of my life. I owe him nothing. Well, I knew we had a problem. So I looked at him and said, well, here's why you pray for him. Because the Bible says to pray for those which despitefully use you. Every person who has ever wronged you, you have a Bible responsibility for pray for them. Did you know that? They're on your prayer list whether you like it or not. Well, as soon as I made that statement, I said, well, you have to because God said you pray for them which despitefully use you. He's a good man. And it was like he got hit by a sledgehammer. And that's what the Bible is, isn't it? He told me later he wrestled with God about that thing. He didn't want to pray for his father. I think he said it was one in the morning when he finally told God, okay, God, I'll pray for my dad. And the moment he said that, God has such a sense of humor, it was like God said to him, Find him. Well, he said, okay, God, I'll pray for him, but I don't want to find him. You ever, have you ever argued with God? Have you ever noticed that you never win? Have you ever noticed that? Well, finally, that morning, he got on social, his social media, uh, whatever he had, and he typed in his dad's name. God has another sense of humor. Boom, first person up was his dad. He messaged his father, hadn't talked to him in literally in years. He said immediately his dad messaged him back. When he came to the conference the next morning, I remember him. In fact, I think he gave testimony at the conference. But he said, he, he said to me before the, he gave testimony, he said, Brother Van Gelder, he, he messaged me back. He said, I haven't read it yet. I'm too scared to read it. He later did read it. It was a very good, it was a very good response. Well, he left the conference and I was Probably about four weeks later, I said, i got to call him, see how that journey's going, because that's a precarious journey. I mean, it could be tough. It could be rough. So I called him up, and I said, Brother, how's it going? He said, Brother, you are not going to believe what has happened. 
He said, I have taken my dad off the despitefully use you list and I have put him on the people I love list. He said, also, he said, the last time I talked to my dad on the phone, he said, I did something I have never done in my life. He said, I told my birth dad that I loved him. He said, Brother Van Gelder was kind of awkward, but he said, I said, hey, dad, I love you. He said, uh, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, you're not going to believe this. He said, I got up to my church and I told him my story. He, I said to my church, you don't know me. He said, I've been afraid to tell you my story because I thought you might reject me. He said, because I'm telling my story, he said, I'm having unbelievable opportunities. The foster program has asked me to come in and tell my story to all these foster kids, of what I've been through. And, uh, but anyway, as, as we talked for a while, and he was rejoicing. It was one story after another. He was rejoicing, but I'll never forget his final words. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, I'm free. For the first time in my life, I'm free. I'm going to tell you something, friends. You'll never be free if you have unforgiveness in your heart, never. It puts you in bondage. You've got to get the ground back from the enemy. And I'll tell you, if any of those things describe you, you need to ask the Lord, Lord, show me. Because I, I want to get rid of the old, the new, and you've got to start renewing how you think. There's a lot of things we could say about that renewal. So many different things. Some people think I'm worthless. Nobody can love me. I can't trust anybody. Every single one of those lies can be corrected by the truth of the Word of God. Every one of them. I'm just encouraging everyone in this room that the old can go, the new can come. And just like my friend, this pastor, you can say, I'm free. I'm free. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed?